LB Sachs, thank you very much for being here and being a guest on our podcast, Speak to a Lawyer. You've been an inspiration to so many, including myself. I read your book over here when I was in law school and uh, it's had a profound impact on my life and I'm sure on the lives of so many. For those who don't know you, a brief background and we can talk more about it is you were instrumental in the fight against apartheid, uh, so much so that you were um, in exile for a while and you were subject to torture. Sorry for having to bring that up. Um, you um, again were instrumental in drafting the South African constitution uh, from exile and then eventually um, once apartheid ended you came back to South Africa and were appointed by Nelson Mandela to the highest court in South Africa, the Constitutional Court, where you served for, I believe, 15 years. Um, I read that you have 14 honorary degrees, which is super impressive. You've done so much in your career, and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you and exploring it a little bit more. Um, so thank you again. I'd like to start at the very beginning. Just before you move on, if you're impressed, about 14, I've actually got 25 only degrees. My uh, apologies. That's okay. Uh, I crave them actually. I'm, I'm, I, I, it's a confession I make. Uh, the very first one I got, I was very dismissive. I went damn hard for my real degree. What's this honorary degree stuff? But somehow the more you get, the more, the more you want. Uh, and then the compressed history, I assume we'll go into it a little bit. May, maybe we will because uh, it was a little bit compressed, but the basic outline is correct, that, that uh, I grew up in an anti-racist activist family. I was uh, in prison, subject confinement, sleep deprivation, torture, went into exile, was blown up, came back, and one of the persons helping to write the constitution. That's, that's uh, yeah, exactly right, and so impressive. I mean, sorry, I, I minimized the amount of degrees you have. It's, it's, if, I'd, if I had an institution, I'd give you one as well, let's put it that way. Um, you know, in, in this book, The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law, um, I found so many interesting passages, but one in particular, when they were figuring out some difficult moral question, someone suggested, what would your mother do? Um, and that became a symbol of uh, morality and justice, perhaps. So I, I like to start with that. And, you know, you're, you're a man of justice and principles, obviously, as a judge and as someone who fought apartheid. What influence did your mother and your parents have uh, on your life and on your decision to pursue the career you did? I'm going to start with my dad. Uh, Sonny Sachs was the general secretary of the Garment Workers Union. Uh, in the news all the time, in and out of court, very prominent public figure until he was banned in Johannesburg, went into exile, was one of the founders of the anti-apartheid movement in uh, London. Uh, and people kind of assumed that I took after my dad. But after I was blown up by a bomb put in my car in uh, Mozambique and uh, I recovered slowly, slowly in London, and actually went to Lisbon in, in Portugal for my recuperation and recovery. Uh, and somebody asked me there, uh, Albie, where do you think you got the strength from? You seem so optimistic and, and so positive about things. You lost an arm, you were nearly killed, and yet you come through very positive. And I'm thinking, 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 and it wasn't my dad's qualities, this public figure uh, in the news almost all the time. 
a, a great controversialist, very left-wing, very strong-minded uh, at, at, at his cremation at Golders Green in, in, in London, Sam Kahn, the very brilliant witty lawyer who'd been in the struggle in South Africa said, uh, I'm sure if God exists, Sonny is arguing with him right now. And, and everybody laughed. It's a kind of bitter galecht, a, a sad, sad humorous, humorous thing. But the qualities that actually saw me through the bomb were quiet resilience, uh, a feeling of basic optimism about the world, uh, an ability to get on with things in an undemonstrative way. And I realized I'm actually speaking about my mom, Ray, who was a typist when she dictated her uh, memoir. We called it Memories of a Revolutionary Typist because she was the typist for Moses Kutani, who'd be in the General Secretary of the Communist Party in South Africa. And she was his typist. And I grew up in that world where uh, she would say to me and my little brother, tidy up, tidy up, Uncle Moses is coming. And Uncle Moses wasn't Moses Cohen or Moses Levine, it's Moses Kotani. Uh, and it was, I suppose, Ray with that very quiet, style and manner, rather self-deprecating. She said, why should I tell my story? I wasn't important. And I said, mommy, that's exactly why you should tell your story. We have the stories of the leading figures. We don't have the stories of the people who are around there serving, supporting, and, and, uh, and so on. But I, I discovered to my surprise that the qualities that saw me through were very much Ray, Ray, Ray Sachs, Ray Ginsburg, she was Ray Sachs, she later on became uh, Ray, Ray Edwards. Uh, and in that sense, a very strong sense of fairness, of justice, of right. Uh, one of the early shocks in, in my childhood, uh, I'm at boarding school, South African College School, Sachs. I, I was Sachs from Sachs, Sachs School. Uh, and I would, on Sundays, uh, walk down those who know Cape Town, the Government Avenue, catch the double-decker bus to Clifton, where my mom had a little kind of basement uh, apartment. And uh, I come home one day and I say, look, mommy, I saved my penny. I didn't pay. You didn't pay? I thought she'd be pleased. You didn't pay? This is public transport. This is important. If everybody doesn't pay, then the people don't have the buses. Uh, and I've never forgotten that. When, when my, my second child turned three in London, I mean, inside in London, and I went on the underground with him, I bought a ticket for him. I think I'm the only person in the history of the London underground for, I don't know, 80, 90 years who's bought a ticket on the third birthday of a child. It's kind of understood you wait till the child's about five, but that really stood in my mind. Very simple thing, it's a kind of right and wrong, not in terms of manner and kind of conduct and doing what's publicly called the right thing. It's doing what is the right thing because it's for the people, it's for the public. And I think that was instilled in me very, very early on. A sense of basic integrity, basic fairness,
I, I might mention that that comment uh, in, in my writing about uh, the issue there was what should we do about ANC security guards in the struggle days, in camps, in Angola, who were using torture against captured enemy agents. Uh, and it was terrible. We're fighting for freedom and we're using the mechanisms of the oppressors. We can't do that. But now this is years later. We're achieving democracy and we have a commission of inquiry that says we have to follow up against those abuses that took place 10 years ago in the camps in Angola. And we are going this way and that. And somebody stood up and said, what would my mother say? My mother, an ordinary African woman, maybe four years schooling, and not very knowledgeable about politics, but somebody fair and decent. What's right? And my mother said, is something odd. You're quite correctly looking at your own failures, but what about all the oppression over centuries from the regime? Where's the balance? And my mother would say, there's a lack of balance. And that's when Professor Kurt Asmal stood up and said, what we need is a truth commission, truth and reconciliation commission to do it even handedly. But afterwards, uh, a feminist critic said, why do you bring the mother in as the source of this wise maternal wisdom? Uh, can't mothers be, and women be activists? And I, I wouldn't give my, on, on that ground. I think this is something, uh, a kind of stream in, in history and family life and social reproduction of values and so on, special role that for centuries mothers have been playing as the bearers of culture, the bearers of values, uh, often when their the men folk, their husbands, their sons, their partners, lovers and so on, are doing things that are, are not worthy. And I'm not saying mothers are incapable of acting in unworthy ways, sadly many are. But that idea, what would my mother say? It was really the idea of applying simple, straightforward virtue, good and bad, right and wrong, that we all need in our lives. We need it in the highest court in the land. We need it in the smallest little action uh, at our homes. So, so those are the thoughts that come back to me. Incredible. I mean, there's so much to unpack over there. And we'll get to the Truth and uh, Reconciliation Commission and some uh, judgments from the, the highest court. But before that, just a bit more about your background. A, a follow up question. One is, where do you think that morality in your parents came from? Is there anything that stands out in their background or upbringing, which brings them, uh, you know, made them such moral people? That's number one. And number two is what really prompted you to study law? You had such a, a good background, uh, balanced, as you said. Why did you go ahead and pursue law? Okay, let's start with my parents. Mm -hmm. uh, to this day, often in quite intimate situations, I'm, I'm critiqued for being so abstract about right and wrong and, and um, what's important. I'll be your birthday is important. I'll say, what's important about I was born? I did nothing. If anything, my mother should be celebrated for. Now, I'll be this place for the sentiment and, and schmaltz and, and uh, we need these things. And you are so serious. You don't celebrate birthdays. You only celebrate big public events and so on. Uh, well, that came uh, through my parents. And I discovered partly because 
they didn't celebrate their birthdays. Having uh, been born in Lithuania, part of Russia in those days, being Jews, their birthdays were not registered. They didn't have their birthdays. It was a kind of cultural awkwardness having to celebrate a birthday that wasn't their real birthday. And I somehow imbibed that, that aspect. But I also imbibed from them that sense of the injustice of it, that people's lives are being dictated by power that is irrational and unjust and based on prejudice. So these things came sort of very, very early on. Uh, and they were all part of the source of the morality. Uh, my dad was critiqued by his brother and others for sometimes feeling the end justifies the means. Uh, he once said to me when, when the Soviet troops entered uh, Czechoslovakia at uh, the time of the Prague Spring, uh, 1969, I think it was, and uh, I felt sick. Uh, he looked at me very, very sadly and said, I'll be, you'll never be a Bolshevik. Now he'd been expelled from the Communist Party. He wasn't a dynamical communist, but a bit of that Stalinism, I think, remained in him all, all the way through. Uh, and my mom had actually visited the Soviet Union in the 1920s and had a kind of faith in the Soviet Union, what it stood for, would never have supported something like that, would never have wanted a son to be a Bolshevik if being a Bolshevik meant sending troops in to, to impose their will. But it, it meant these big public events somehow seeped into me very, very early on and became a source of morality. Uh, the Jewishness, uh, I'm sure it was an important part of my cultural heritage and background in a broad way. But to me, it was, certainly wasn't the Torah because my parents were committedly secular. It was important for them. They broke with their parents on the question of religion. And I think maybe that made me deeply imbued with a sense of conscience that what goes on in your head, your heart, your soul, is fundamental. It comes before freedom of speech, the right to eat, to vote, to whatever it might be, the right to conscience. Uh, and it was so important for me, being a Jew, which made me other, and being the other, being a secular Jew within the Jewish community, not going through the formalities, made me extremely aware of the importance of conscience. And you'll see it in my judgments uh, and, and in my conduct afterwards, being very, very, if you like, friendly to religion, because it's so important for people who are believers and my respect for them. I'm saying to myself, if I pretend to believe in God and I don't have it, it's disrespectful to me and disrespectful to God if God exists. You don't pretend on belief. That's fundamental, that's core. That's a source of integrity and honesty. Now this is big stuff for a child to be navigating his way through. Uh, Judaism, uh, the way I put it, the way I think, it, 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 it's Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, all these crazy people, uh, millenarian with the view of the world, inside the world, and outside the world. All of these people together with my Auntie Rosie's take that at Rosh Hashanah connect me to 3,000 years of, of Jewish history rather than the tales of the, the Jewish history. 
so there's something in that that's part of my my kind of background and then certainly being in the struggle uh, people presented as a sacrifice and and i get so indignant it wasn't a sacrifice it was a joy but hard moments severe moments but i i, I learned simple things to move to to get out of my tight white skin to sing in public to, to be expressive in ways that I wouldn't have done otherwise. But I also learned to respect the culture, the ways, the styles of other people, to listen and to feel the intense, it's called Ubuntu, African humanism, uh, just seeping in, not as a catechism, not as an ideology that you study, but as a way of doing things, of interactions, all of these things fed in. And then when it came to critical moments in the struggle, and Oliver Tambor, the president of the ANC in exile, asked me to come to his office to fly up from Maputo, where I'm helping build up the new legal system. I'm very curious to know what, what, what is it he wants, and courtesy, African style, my health, how things are getting on, things in Mozambique, and finally it comes to it. He says, we have a problem. We have a number of enemy agents who are in our camps. We've captured them. And we know they've been sent to destroy our organization. But there's nothing in the ANC constitution that says, what do you do with captured enemy agents? So in my kind of comfortable, easygoing, uh, uh, lawyer's way, I say, well, uh, the international principles and statutes that say no inhuman, degrading punishment or treatment, no torture, he says to me, we use torture with a bleak face. I can't believe it. We use torture. We're fighting for freedom. We use torture. And then he asked me to develop a code of conduct, to write it out for the ANC in exile. And this is a unique experience. Uh, I think it's the only liberation movement that's had in effect a Bill of Rights inside the organization for how you deal with infractions, violations. And it can be anything from coming drunk to a meeting, to stabbing, stealing, driving drunk, to being an enemy agent wanting to poison and kill and murder and bomb the leadership. How to deal in a legal way. And we established, we established structures uh, and appointed people to be the effect, in effect, prosecutors and defense counsel. Uh, it was so important for us to have justice in our hearts, in our spirits, if we are fighting for justice in the land. And that's one reason why we ended up with a very expansive and comprehensive Bill of Rights in the final constitution in South Africa. It wasn't might is right. Uh, it wasn't feeling we've been oppressed uh, and now we're in power and we'll show them, give them a taste of their own medicine. That wasn't the country we were fighting for. We were fighting for a country of free people. And when it came to telling an in-house seminar. Imagine revolutionary movement having an in-house seminar, an in-house seminar on constitutional guidelines, and I'm asked to speak about the Bill of Rights. I say we need a Bill of Rights for three reasons. It makes us look good, everybody agrees. It's our answer to group rights for whites in a future South Africa. That would be a disaster. They can't have a minority veto. They can get rights under a Bill of Rights like everybody else, not because they're white or minority, 
but because they're human beings. That's the strategic reason for the Bill of Rights. And I said, we need a Bill of Rights against ourselves. And I was worried that they'll say, oh, bourgeois lawyer, the word bourgeois would be thrown out at the end of that. You don't have to argue anymore with bourgeois. And, and I saw looks of delight because people had seen in countries where leaders had fought heroically for freedom, had gone on to become oppressive, accumulating wealth for themselves, throwing opposition to jail. Inside our own organization, bad things have happened. And now we're saying we need a Bill of Rights against ourselves. This is during the struggle. And I'm saying it because I'm not speaking for myself, Albie, I'm speaking for Oliver Tumbo, Chris Harney, many of the other leaders who always had that, that, that sense of morality. So for me, struggle, morality, and even included supporting the armed struggle. So it's not a question of violence and nonviolence, but the violence, if it's used against oppressive regime and there's no scope for peaceful protest, there's no scope for voting out of power, you use violence, but it's not indiscriminate. It's not terrorism. It's not directed against the race. It's directed against the system. And when you can talk, you talk. This is all part and parcel of the process. Why did I become a lawyer? I don't know. People ask you, tell me, Albie, I'm putting on my South African accent. I'm in my matriculation year. What are you going to do when, when you matriculate? Uh, and I was saying, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor, and suddenly I'm going to be a lawyer. I don't know. But it was a kind of a feeling that somehow I could be useful. I wasn't politically engaged in those years. My parents very, very active. I hated them assuming I would follow in their footsteps. But there was this feeling, being a lawyer, I could do something that would be good, useful for humanity. Absolutely. And, and you definitely have made a difference, no question about it. I mean, you talk about the Bill of Rights, and we can talk about that more if you want the effectiveness on it, of it and what kind of enforcement mechanisms you had. There's a lot to go into there. But really, the most curious thing that I have seen in South Africa's success is the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, really unbelievable and unmatched anywhere else in the world, as far as I know. I know other places have tried such a model, but uh, have not succeeded. So I find it really beautiful how South Africa has moved on and dealt with their past in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Can you talk about maybe for people who don't know what that is, what that was, how it came about and the effects of it going forward, why, why perhaps other countries have failed where South Africa succeeded? Okay, I must tell you, it's very contested in South Africa today. Not for what it did, but for there not having been a follow-up and expanding more, 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 more widely. But I, I personally feel it was enormously important for South Africa and enabled us to move on in ways that we couldn't have done. Uh, I've given you part of the background. Right. The background was now... I'm on the National Executive of the ANC. We're hoping to write the new constitution. We're having very heavy battles at what was called the World Trade Center, a very gloomy space with a grandiose name uh, near the airport outside Johannesburg. Uh, and the issue on the agenda, and we're very close to elections, is what do we do about the report that says the ANC abused human rights in its camps? report commissioned by the ANC leadership and the report confirming that there were abuses and saying 
we must take action. And it was one of those debates, you can't decide on a show of hands. By 43 to 32, we agree. It's a deep moral question. There has to be a principled answer. And that principled answer came when the figure of this uh, delegate's mother said, where's the balance? And Kada Asmal said, we, we shouldn't simply be looking at our own faults. The new government in South Africa must do it on a government level and not just leave it to us. That was the one element. The other element that turned out to be critical was we signed what we thought was the constitution to get elections, to give us a new parliament that would draft the final constitution in keeping with certain principles agreed to in advance. And we even celebrated the signing of it. I remember speeches went on and on and on about two in the morning. Uh, AMC person says, let's have some music. We start dancing and all the ANC people are moving even at 2 a.m. And I tell some journalists, you want to see who's going to win the next election, see who are dancing. And the National Party people are all very embarrassed with their backs, literally backs to the wall and can't move. I said, you can never win elections in South Africa if you can't move. In any event, I fly to London to report to the Catholic Institute of International Relations, I think, had been giving us a lot of support uh, on the, the process. And they put me up at a very dingy hotel in King's Cross. And I mentioned that because it's relevant to the story. Uh, as constitutional negotiations advanced, our accommodation got better. And now we're close to the end and we're at the Garden Court Hotel. Suddenly I'm back at my grassroots level hotel and I'm going to sleep at night. I'm very tired, long journey, and knock on the door. Sorry to wake you at this hour, but the CIIR had just received an urgent fax. I don't know if you know faxes or remember faxes. Tear the strips off the side, difficult to read, uh, and it's very urgent. It's from ANC headquarters and saying there's a crisis. The generals are saying that the tech had promised them amnesty. And the text of the Constitution doesn't give them amnesty. What should we do? And those on the Constitutional Committee of the ANC were saying, we can't have a general amnesty. We can't. People must come forward one by one, acknowledge what they've done. So I turned over that piece of paper and said, let's have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but everybody must come forward one by one to tell their stories about what they'd done, how they violated the law. And that was sent back. And that ended up getting into the Constitution in the famous epilogue that was added to the constitutional text, saying we must remember the untold hardships and injustices of the past, but deal with them not in a spirit of retaliation and vengeance, but in a spirit of reconciliation and Ubuntu. Ubuntu, a powerful African concept of human interdependence, that you don't solve a problem by eliminating the person who's causing the, the difficulty, but by finding a way of getting that person to become part of the body politic of, of, of the community. Uh, and that became the foundation of the Truth Commission. 
So that was one important element. It was for our needs. We didn't say, oh, South Africa had a truth commission. Let's have a truth commission to solve our problems. Two burning, real, hard issues were resolved in that particular way. And the core of our TRC was, in fact, balancing amnesty for truth. That was unique in our process because it, it, it was needed. Uh, Dalla Omar, who was the first Minister of Justice, told me often, said, I'll be, most of my first year in office was spent just on the TRC. It had to have a legal basis itself. Government couldn't just set up a body without any rules, procedures, without debate, without input. He said it was so hard to get the police and army involved to create the conditions. It was in culture of three. So it wasn't one group trying to do everything. The one group just heard the truth. It traveled around the country. Desmond Tutu was the head. That was another very important factor. You need a leader who's got integrity, who's got credibility, who's not a neutral cipher. You can't be neutral on torture, violence, racism. You take a stand, but you do so impartially. You're not partisan in terms of who you listen to, who you give credence to, you listen to everybody. And he was ideal for that. And all the other people chosen for the Truth Commission in varying degrees represented a diversity of people all known for their probity. I think that's absolutely vital. The other, another section dealt with granting amnesty and that had two judges and some lay people. That was more formal in its, in its style of work. And there we lay down the criteria that you can get amnesty if you tell the truth and you show that what you did was in connection with the political struggles of the past. So bank robbers came forward and said, you know, we black people, we stole money from white banks. That wasn't enough. It had to be part of a political struggle. Uh, and the third was reparations. And you didn't get reparations in terms of how much you proved the damage was. That would have made it into a court trial. Uh, it, it was who should get the reparations, what form should it take. My own view is we could have done more with the reparations aspect. In terms of the amnesty, it was very dramatic to see the killers, the torturers coming forward and acknowledging what they'd done. No scope for deniability afterwards. It's out of their mouths. They weren't wholehearted. They didn't tell all the truth, but it was a total acknowledgement of what they'd done, that was enormous. But possibly the most important was the first, the truth-telling. And I, I was puzzled. Why did the truth come pouring out in the Truth Commission with such conviction and without formal rules of evidence? And it was the time of the O.J. Simpson trial, which we were all watching on TV, and at the end of it, the jury split, nobody knew what the heck had happened. And you'd think more truth would come out in a court of law unless in this, and I developed my four kinds of truth notion. It was just, I've only got one hand, so I've got five fingers, four kinds of truth. There's what I call observational microscopic truth. You define an area, you look at the measurables, and you see how the variables play out, measure it over time. That's evidential proof. Then there's logical truth. And I always tell the story of my 
South Asian's manuscript dealing with being blown up and so on, uh, what it's like to wake up without an arm. Uh, I take it to a publisher's agent in New York. I'm very excited. And she battles away to me before I know what's happened. She told me a whole life story. And she ends up by saying, let's face it, LB, all men are a fundamentally flawed species. Uh, but if she's correct, I'm a man, I'm fundamentally flawed. It flows from the logic. It's not dependent on evidence, on data. It flows from the logic. And most forensic work, legal work, is based on a combination of logical and evidential. The Truth Commission was experiential. We remember the lamentations, the cries, the sobbing, the shrieks. We remember those killers standing there in their suits, sometimes a little snot of moustache, reading their statements, stiff, but something of the truth coming out. This was the nation. These are our people, the range of emotions. And it was the phenomenological aspect of the Truth Commission that had its impact, not the report afterwards. Scientists, political scientists, read the report. It's a useful source of evidence. But people remember the truth-telling in our accents, our languages, with interpretation. Uh, tell me, Sergeant so-and-so, how can you put a wet bag over somebody's head and they smothering. How can one human being do that to another human being? And Sergeant Benzine cries, this man who had power of life and death, he cried. We remember that because we saw it on the TV. And that's experiential truth. And finally, there's what I call dialogical truth. The interaction of multiple voices and opinions. And the strength of our Truth Commission was experiential and dialogical, not purely evidential. And I think some truth commissions have failed because they put too much emphasis on gathering facts and not enough emphasis on voice, on hearing the voices of the people in a way that's very, very, very meaningful. In any event, it set a standard for what we call restorative justice. Justice is not only sending people to jail and ordering them to pay money and even killing people. It's one forms of accountability. Restorative justice in the spirit of Ubuntu can be much more powerful. Drawing people in, helping them to discover their humanity, making them feel part of the very society that they were helping to destroy. Uh, and, and that's why I feel our Truth Commission played such an important role, paving the way for the new constitution so that there'd be less agony in our hearts as we now granted rights to everybody at least the truth had been told. I think, and I'll just end with this, an American political scientist said, what the Truth Commission did was to convert knowledge into acknowledgement. We knew these terrible things had happened. There'd been assassinations, tortures, death and detention. It was all abstract, statistical. Acknowledgement meant the people who did it acknowledged they'd done it. The society acknowledged these terrible things had happened. Those who had suffered so much and been in so much pain and trauma, they were listened to, they could tell their stories, that was acknowledged. It was the nation acknowledging the traumas of the past. That becomes the beginning of a common history. If your history is divided, 
with whites believing we did nothing wrong, we tried our best, we made a few mistakes, and blacks saying we only know the oppression, divided history goes on into the future. At least there's a common history that apartheid wasn't just a social experiment that failed, which some people say. It was cruel, at its very heart, it was inhuman in its conception, and it was brutal in its application. And no one can deny that today. Absolutely, and like I said, a beautiful commission, what it's done. Uh, there's always room for improvement, but uh, it's, it's really a one of a kind, so to speak. Without getting too philosophical, I wanna know if you think uh, on a personal level, not a governmental level or national level, on a personal level, there could be such, such a thing as a reconciliation between two people, and whether there's room for resentment in human relationships or enemies. Well, you're asking at a personal level. Uh, uh, I'm now Justice L.B. Sachs. I name up over the door, temporary accommodation, Constitutional Court of South Africa. The phone rings. Uh, reception, there's a man called Henry who's come to see you. Uh, he says he has an appointment. I said, send him through. My heart's beating. Boom, 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 boom. And I walked down to the security gate. Henry had telephoned to say he had put the bomb in my car or organized it, that blew me up. He's going to the Truth Commission, am I willing to see him? And I open the door, I see this guy, he's younger than me, he's tall and thin like me, and he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, and in his eyes I can see, so this is the man I tried to kill, and I'm saying to myself, this is the man who tried to kill me. He didn't know each other. We hadn't fought over a job or money or love, but he was on that side, I was on this side. And we walked to my chambers and he's strutting like a soldier and I do my best judge's ambulation to slow him down. And we sit down, we talk, we talk, we talk. He tells me what a good student he was, uh, how he joined the army and with pride, how he rose in the ranks. He rose in the ranks to become a hit squad member. He's giving me, this was kind of weird and naive. And eventually he tells me the story of the bomb in my car and he's going to the Truth Commission. And at the end of quite a long, rather fascinated interaction between us, uh, I say, Henry, I have to get on with my work. Normally when I say goodbye to someone, I shake that person's hand. I can't shake your hand. But go to the Truth Commission, who knows? Uh, maybe one day we'll meet. And I notice as he's walking back to the gate now, he's like a defeated soldier. And I forget about him. And months, months, months pass, end of the year, it's hot, we're having a party, you'll know, end of year, Christmas time, South Africa, we're tired, and a friend invites me to a party being given by some film people. And I go there, the music's very loud, and I hear a voice saying, Albie, Albie, I can't believe it. It's Henry. And we get into a corner and he said, I went to the Truth Commission and I told Bobby and Sue and Farouk everything I knew and you said one day. And I said, Henry, I've only got your face to tell me what you're saying is the truth. And I put out my hand, I shook his hand. I almost fainted. He went away joyous, a valiant. But somebody told me afterwards, he actually went home and he cried for two weeks. I don't know if that's true. And I'm not even checking to find it's true. I want to believe it's true. 
it's more important for me that he cried than that one rascal goes to jail, that he's discovering his own humanity. It's becoming, if that's like, if you like, a South African citizen embracing the new values uh, of, of, of the new country. He's not my friend. I won't turn him up and say, let's go to a movie. But if I'm sitting in a bus and he sits down next to me, I'll say, hey, Henry, how are you getting on? And somehow I felt a little liberated by that process. That thing, the enemy, dark, something menace waiting to strike me down, is now reduced to that person who's now coming to terms with, with, with what he did, humanizing, if you like, aspects of, of, of our struggle. I'm pleased he did that. And this is just a personal response. Uh, and for me, it's far more liberating to feel that than to walk around with resentment. Resentment chews you up. It chews you up. Uh, it's your worst enemy to live with resentment. You can't get on with your life. You're trapped in that very situation that's causing the pain. You remain there forever. And, and it's liberating to get out of it. But you can't simply say, I must escape just by an act of will. You have to believe that something has happened to, to bring about the change. Now, this is purely personal. Uh, I remember in Mozambique, on the 10th anniversary of the German-French agreement that led to the European Union, being invited to a meeting in Mozambique about how important that was. Age-old enemies for over a century. I think three occupations by Germany of France. Hatreds now becoming the foundations of the European Union. Today, they don't even celebrate that moment anymore. It's so taken for granted. It's to say that groups that have had long, deeply entrenched hatreds can work together, can work together. And if they can prosper together, if they can deal with the sources of, of the resentment. Uh, and when I'm told about, for example, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and people say, well, in South Africa, it was easy, easy. Everything was against us in South Africa. In many respects, it was worse, much, much worse. And yet we did it. We found the leadership, we found the styles, the, the mechanisms, and we're not over the problems. The problems are still there. Uh, if we could do it, there's no problem created by human beings that can't be resolved by human beings. Incredible. Well, there's so much to talk about. I mean, I have many more questions. I'll try and narrow it down because we don't have uh, that much time left. You bring up the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I hope this isn't too controversial. But uh, when I was there coming from South Africa and being in, in Israel, I always felt uneasy with the apartheid label being stuck onto Israel because the situations are obviously very different. So what's your take on that apartheid being slapped onto other countries and other circumstances? Is it a bit of a hijacking the term or what's your thoughts about that? Okay, I'm gonna duck that question and I'll explain why. Uh, I've never been to what I call that part of the world. If you give it a name, you're already taking a position. So I call it that part of the world. Uh, and in the year 2000, I was invited by the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard to speak at a workshop in Gaza on a, a Bill of Rights. And I flew into Tel Aviv, my wife Vanessa. Uh, we met by a car driven by 
a Christian Arab from Ramallah come to fetch us. He goes through the checkpoints. It reminded me so much of show your documents. To Ramallah. We're there a couple of days. We cross the checkpoint again. Attention. It was an amazing conference. Things looked very positive then in terms of getting a settlement. And and um, a very vigorous, very lively debate with people from Northern Ireland and been at war with each other and myself from South Africa to deal with possibilities of transcending conflict. Uh, and I didn't speak about that part of the world at all. I just spoke about Nelson Mandela, South Africa, a leader who accepts the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the rulings of the Constitutional Court, importance of constitutionalism. We drive back, checkpoints, checkpoints, I get a message that Yasser Arafat wants to meet you. And he wants to meet me, I want to meet him. We go into that famous compound. He's walking towards me, looking just like Yasser Arafat, with the scarf, with the stubble. This man is a hero, he says. Puts his arms around here, kisses on both cheeks with the stubble. The next morning, I'm in Jerusalem, sitting on the Supreme Court bench, next to Aram Barak. And I thought, a white South African Jew, I didn't hide from each where I'd been or where I was going. I have a chance of possibly being able to move from the one side sphere group to the other, and possibly one day to have a role to have a role. I'm not a Zionist. I've never been a Zionist. I understand where cousins of mine, people I know, people very progressive in all sorts of ways. We share ideas on everything. And yet Israel means something to them special, a Jewish state. Uh, I understand that meaning and what it signifies. And I understand having been a freedom fighter myself the emotion, the longings of Palestinians for dignity, for statehood, for personality, for a sense of freedom. And if I can have a role, possibly helping with connections, a bit of Ubuntu, if you like, then maybe it, well, it is a bit arrogant on my part, but it's arrogance that I'm preserving. So I don't sign on to BDS. I don't answer questions about apartheid, uh, Israel apartheid. I duck the question, but I always tell this whole story. Very nice. Well, I do hope that you have an impact and uh, are able to shift the parties one way or another, you know, bridge the gaps over there, because uh, right now there's not much going on. But uh, anyway, a couple more questions, LB. Such a fascinating background. Looking back on the your Supreme Court, your, your constitutional court years, the highest court, you were there for, I think, 15 years. What stands out, if you can think one case, one episode, I know that's unfair in your book, you list a bunch of um, influential cases, uh, all of them I'm sure you can talk about, but if you had to pick one, could you do that? Uh, no. I'm going to say the first case was capital punishment. It was momentous. Uh, and each one of us wrote a separate judgment. Uh, 
saying capital punishment not expressly authorized in our constitution, not expressly excluded, but saying that looked at as a whole, our Bill of Rights made it impossible for the state to cold-bloodedly kill whatever the person had done, however abominable they'd been. Uh, and the theme of Ubuntu played up very strongly in six of our judgments. The very last case I had dealt with people in a very impoverished area of Johannesburg who'd walked to court claiming that they had been, they were living in, in a called Shackland. They'd been promised dignified housing. They'd been waiting for three years and they still didn't have it. In the meanwhile, they had to use uh, concrete pit latrines and they wanted what were called VIPs, ventilated improved pit latrines. Now, I don't know another court in the world top court in the land that would hear that as a constitutional matter. And I was thrilled that our court was hearing that matter. And in the end, we didn't order that they get the VIPs. But because the cases were being brought, suddenly the housing program was being advanced. And we said to give these VIPs for one year didn't make sense. And at one stage, the council for the city of, of Johannesburg said, before I go any further, I want to apologize to the court for the fact that we promised to build the houses, we didn't build the houses. And Dechan Bosaneki, who was presiding, said, don't apologize to us, apologize to the people in the court. And he turned to them and spoke in Hausa uh, language. It was very moving and very wonderful that they were being treated as human beings with dignity and that the presiding judge didn't say apologize to us, apologize to them. So that was the beginning and end, the book ends if you like, of every single case is the most important case when you're dealing with it. When you finish with it, you blot it out of your mind completely because you need that energy for the next case. Beautiful. I mean, such an impact. Um, is there any last bit of advice, words of wisdom you want to share to the younger generation of lawyers or law students, uh, maybe internationally, but also in South Africa, if you want to get specific? Uh, never, 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 never give up on your idealism. Never worry if somebody calls you a romantic. Take it, take it as a tribute. Never feel that you're being too mushy or too soppy or whatever it is. These things are powerful, they're strong, they're core. And they see you through so much, through personal traumas and tribulations, through your work as a lawyer in court, your relationship with colleagues inside the family. Hang on to that, cling to that. That's a source of deep nourishment. For some people, it's tied to religion, to others, it comes from a different kind of a source. But that to me, that to me, I, I never consciously said I'm hanging on to it, but looking back now, it was that sense which I got from my mom. I got from Ray, self-deprecating Ray. Never give up on that. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I'll be really insightful to speak with you. And uh, you should continue being healthy and well and uh, influencing the world for the better. Uh, there's not enough good people like you with strong morality that are willing to put it to good use. So again, thank you Can very I much. Before signing off, you're in Canada now, is that right? The Canadian Supreme Court, in the early years, when we were fixing where do we stand, uh, we've got a brand new constitution. We can't use the judgments of the old courts under apartheid, even the good judgments. Uh, we had to develop a whole new philosophy, moving away from parliamentary sovereignty to ideas of fundamental rights, from racial privilege to equality. It's a very expressive constitution that the first in the world to guarantee gay rights, the first in the world to guarantee environmental rights, very powerful rights for women in the section, not rights for women, but freedom rights, uh, very important social and economic rights as enforceable rights, this brand new instrument. Where can we get our pointers from? How, what's the technology of reasoning? And we found the new Supreme Court in Canada, I say new after the Bill of Rights, I think it was 1982, the, the Dixon-Wilson Court it's called, enormously helpful. A methodology, a style of work, a philosophy, an approach. And the first thing we did was always look up, I think it was Hogg, to get a, an in, indication of which Canadian decision. Sometimes we followed the majority, sometimes the minority. Always we got good value for, for that research. And then personal friendships. Claire the Rue de Bay became an immensely close personal friend with her abundant uh, style, uh, her remarkable way of doing things. There you are. There you are. Wow, never seen her that young. <laughs> yeah, great book. Wonderful, wonderful. And her approach to equality, we absorbed it and it went back. We were, it germinated in South Africa, went back to Canada. Uh, Rosie Abella happens to be a great personal friend of mine and, and many others, uh, Jacobucci, uh, I met before I became a judge, and he gave me such invaluable advice, never realizing. I even met Brian Dixon saying, uh, Albie, uh, I can't overemphasize the importance of what he called judicial uh, statecraft. Not just to be clever and smart and technically good, judicial statecraft. So all of these things played a very, very big role. So it's very much, thank you, Canada. The judges today, don't look to Canada anymore, they look to our judgments because we created a jurisprudence which they can build on. But the foundations, if you like, of the foundations drew very heavily on Canadian jurisprudence. Yeah, well, thank you for that, those kind words about Canada. And I'm, I'm honored to be part of the Canadian uh, legal system because I do find it very, uh, you know, based on equality and equal rights and freedoms. And, um, you know, it's, it's good and that they influence South Africa. And you know your constitution is progressive, taking the best of everything. So you know that's that's the luxury, I guess, of starting relatively late in the 90s. Is you could cherry pick the best from all these different jurisdictions, and you definitely did that. I've heard great things about the South African constitution, and it's still in its developmental years, but a lot of great things to come even going forward. Wow.
Thank you, Albi. I really appreciate your time. You've been great and look forward to maybe speaking again soon.